You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Archaeology Now, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This month, our guest speaker is Chris Corker, speaking about making the armament center of the world, 1816-1914. Due to current COVID-19 restrictions, this talk is taking place online via Google Meets, so there may be some background noise or audio feedback in our recording. We hope you enjoy! We are talking today about Sheffield, of course, and by 1914, Sheffield was very much the armament centre of the entire world. This small town emerging into a city from 1897 had five of the world's six largest armaments companies in a space roughly five miles long by three mile wide. And what I want to go through today is how Sheffield became this armament centre, how the technology evolved and the personalities involved, the customers involved as well, all the way through to those final days before the First World War broke out. And we're predominantly dealing with naval armaments right now. Of course, Sheffield is propping up the Royal Navy as the paramount navy in the entire world at this time. The army does feature a little bit, but predominantly Sheffield is making towards the navy and also overseas navies as well, which I'll come on to shortly. So let me give you a sense of what we're talking about here. And you can see on our screen a little map. Uh, the furthest right on the little map you can see, and you'll see it just says there, shoe. That is modern day Meadowhall Shopping Centre. And as we move further left, we are getting closer towards the center of Sheffield. And this is roughly about three miles long. I know I said five miles a second ago, roughly three miles long by about half a mile wide. And within this, we had five major steel companies which made armaments. So to start with, we will begin with the biggest name that many of us have probably heard of, Vickers, at the River Don Works. Now, Vickers, I'll talk about a little bit later, developed into one of the largest companies in Britain, if not the world, by 1914. And at the River Don Works, which is the modern day Sheffield Forge Masters site, it's still in production, they made armor plates, they made finished naval guns, and they made projectiles as well. I'll come on to all these technologies as we go through the talk as well. In addition to Vickers, we also had Camel Lead, which from 1860 was Charles Camels. In 1903, they merged with the Lead Brothers shipyard in Birkenhead to become Camel Lead. And at these two works, the Cyclops works closer to town, which is now a Tesco site, or at least the Tesco is very nearby, and the Grimesport works further down the valley. They're making armor plates, projectiles, and gun forgings. These are the unfinished gun tubes that become machined into your sort of large naval guns. We also have John Brown's, became more famous as a Clydebank shipbuilder, but John Brown's was started right here in Sheffield, producing armor plates and again, those gun forgings. Their next door neighbors were Thomas Firth's, uh, the Norfolk and the Tinsley Works. The Norfolk Works, the three purple squares you see close to the other companies here, are the Norfolk Works and the East and West Gun Works. And it is the West Gun Works, which is now the contemporary Gripple company. And they are making projectiles and gun forgings as well. The Tinsley Works further down the valley uh, is on Whedon Street. It initially made uh, steel and projectiles, later became Firth Vickers making stainless steel. Opposite that now across Sheffield Road is the IKEA, to give you a sense of where that is as well. And our final company is Hadfield. So Hadfield's had two sites. They start out at the Heckler Works on Newall Road, and they develop the East Heckler Works at what is the contemporary Meadowhall site. And that opens in 1897. And Hadfields are making projectiles and light armor. And I'll talk through these things later as well. So as you can see, five of the biggest companies in Sheffield are in this small part of Sheffield, all making all of these things towards the Royal Navy. Now, of course, if you're thinking about where you position a group of companies that are making things for the Navy, Sheffield is probably not your first choice. We're not that close to the coast in many cases. And these companies are connected to shipyards in Glasgow, in Birkenhead, and in Barrow, not 
not the easiest of connection, at least in these early days as well from the 1860s, is that transport network is slowly starting to develop as well. The other company, the, the sixth company that I should talk about as well, is Armstrong Whitworth of uh, Newcastle fame. And Armstrong Whitworth are making some armor plate and some projectiles as well. But basically, three out of the four companies in Britain making armor plates are right here in this small district. And two out of five companies making projectiles are here, at least our major projectile manufacturers in Firths and Hadfields. So as I said, these are some of the largest employers in Sheffield. And just to give you a little sense of that on this slide here, our largest companies, Vickers, Hadfield, Camelair, John Browns, all employing several thousand people. All the names that you've heard of, Jessup's, which we'll know of from Jessup's Hospital, uh, Jonathan Culver's, Samuel Osborne. All the companies, Brown Bailey's is the, well, was the Don Valley uh, Stadium site, is now part of the Olympic Legacy Park. Much smaller numbers. So these companies are connected to the Royal Navy. They're making armaments. They're the biggest in all of Sheffield. Your largest cutlery companies in Sheffield at the same time are employing around about a thousand people. So let's go back to the beginning when Sheffield starts to make these armaments. And this connection to the Navy really develops off the back of this gentleman, Sir John Brown. And in 1860, John Brown is one of the first people in Sheffield to pioneer using the Bessemer converter for steel purposes. And the Bessemer converter is important because this is converting Sheffield from being able to make steel by the pound in the crucible furnace to by the ton. You can see the last working Bessemer converter in all of Britain outside Kellam Island. Despite it being a technology of the 1860s, that Bessemer converter outside Kellam Island remained in production until the 1970s at Workington. This move towards making steel by the ton meant that you could use it for much larger things in terms of armaments. Now, Sheffield, of course, as a cutlery-based center, has lots of connections in terms of making things like knives, bayonets, arrowheads as well. These are smaller things that we can make from steel. And it's the Bessemer converter, which I can show you in this image here, is really where we can start to make the first armor plate, at least large armor plates. HMS Warrior is our first uh, battleship that is faced with iron armor. And what using the Bessemer converter can do is you can produce iron armor with a steel face, the steel being much stronger. And over time, we evolve from being iron faced with steel towards being all steel towards being treated steel. And the way a Bessemer converter works, you can see it demonstrated here in our image. You put all of your material into this large converter. These are making three or four tons at this time. And you essentially blow air through it. And in that process of blowing air through the Bessemer converter, burns off all the impurities and you get this fantastic flame at the top that you can see here as well. And I have a few more images of John Brown's making armor as well. And these are pictures from the 1860s and 1870s. John Brown and next door, Charles Camels, essentially have a monopoly over this production of iron armor with a steel face in the 1860s, 70s, into the early 1880s as well. But you can see the manpower involved from these images. You can see the heat of these furnaces and just how much work it is taking. They're pulling these large slabs out of the furnaces that are hardened to resist projectiles. And what I really like about these images is the complete lack of any health and safety equipment. We are dealing with a, another age when it comes to industrial safety in many ways. Um, I have another image as well from the 1870s on my next slide here, which is from uh, Camel, sorry, Charles Camels. This is at the Cyclops Works. A very similar image. You've got these gangs of workers pulling out this very hot iron piece of armor with steel on its face. And this is at least the first step towards developing Sheffield as that center of world armaments, that connection initially to the Royal Navy. We need to also think about production of guns. And the company of Thomas Firth's, uh, founded by the gentleman on the right, Mark Firth, um, very beloved Sheffielder, was Master Cutler for four years, was Lord Mayor as well. When he passed away in 1880, um, the local newspapers were printed with a, a black edge and there was a very long two-mile uh, funeral procession. He's buried at the General Cemetery. He goes into work with his brother and later his father, Thomas Firth, the gentleman you see on the left, comes into the business as well, creating the name Thomas Firth and Sons. And Thomas first specialized in making steel by the crucible method. So making highly specialized steel in those 60 to 70 pound crucibles. The Bessemer converter is not known for making the best quality steels. It is the crucible which is making your finer steels of the time. 
And they realized that you can use this very fine steel to make guns predominantly for army purposes. And I can show you on my next slide an example of some of the guns made by Thomas Firths. And this image here, I believe, is from 1851. And it depicts what was known as the Woolwich Infant Gun, the largest gun ever made from crucible steel. And this gun involved the pouring of 70 different crucibles. So you have 70 crucibles in massive furnaces all being made at the same time. Gangs of men removing the crucibles from the furnace and pouring them at exactly the right time. If they leave it to cool too long, the gun's going to crack and break. So it takes a heck of a lot of skill to get this right at this time. So we're now moving into the 1860s, 1870s. Some of these guns are still being made by Thomas Firth all the way into the 1880s. This is really where we're starting to develop these things. Some of these guns are starting to go onto naval battleships, but predominantly for the army at this time. As we move forward into the 1870s, we have this gentleman. So I talked about Hadfields a moment ago. Hadfields, the company is set up by this gentleman, Robert Hadfield Sr. And his son, Robert Abbott Hadfield, takes over in 1888. And Robert Hadfield is one of the first people in Sheffield to decide to use Sheffield steel to make projectiles. These are your sort of large naval projectiles that you're using to fire to get through armor plates. And this gentleman starts producing these in the mid-1870s. And 1878 is their first successful production of projectiles at the Heckler Works on Newall Road. And the reason he did this is he wanted to counter what was seen then as French predominance in the production of projectiles. There was a French company called Le Creusot, which had dominated production of projectiles and was also selling them to the Royal Navy. Hagfield was very keen on switching supply for the Royal Navy to British manufacturers. So that's the sort of three pillars of how we develop armaments in Sheffield. We have armor plates, we have gun manufacture, which evolves into naval gun manufacture, and we have projectiles as well. I have a few more pictures of these coming up. Obviously, the older we talk about, the less likely we have actual photographs. So let's move forward now into the 1880s, and these two gentlemen enter the scene. This is Thomas Vickers on the left and Albert Vickers on the right. And these two are the chairman and managing director of what is initially Vickers, becomes Vickers Limited in 1867. By the 1880s, the Royal Navy decides that they want to expand production for naval purposes in Britain. And they launched what's known as the Naval Defence Act of 1888. And this calls for the production of a huge amount of new capital ships. And what these two brothers decide to do at what is now uh, Sheffield Forgemaster's site, the River Don Works, is start producing armour plate and gun, finished naval guns on that site as well. And they submit test pieces in the 1880s and they are approved as a supplier to the Royal Navy in 1888. It is by the 1880s that we are starting to see all steel armour produced. So using the Bessemer converter earlier, we're using iron armour with a steel face. We are moving forward now. Production developments at John Brown's and at Charles Camel are resulting in all steel armor for the first time. And these two are also producing all steel armor from 1888 and those finished gun barrels. They start to develop their empire going forwards. And by 1897, they realize that they can actually develop connections to other companies and start to develop their empire to produce what became known as one of the world's first arsenals, one of the world's first companies in which you could produce an entire battleship. So let me just go through a few points from building a Vickers empire. So in 1897, their armor business has developed, their naval gun business has developed, and they decide to acquire the Maxim Nordfeld company, uh, which was famous for producing Maxim machine guns, which ultimately became known as Vickers machine guns, very famous machine gun of the First World War. They entirely buy this company. It becomes part of the Vickers empire. In 1897 as well, they buy the Electric and Ordnance Accessories Company, which is a company specializing in the production of torpedoes and some of the very, very earliest submarines. And they also purchased the Naval Construction Company at Barrow. Now, the Naval Construction Company at Barrow's shipyard is still in use. It has recently finished building the Queen Elizabeth II um, aircraft carrier. By buying all of these companies together, they changed the name of the company. It is no longer Vickers and Sons. It is Vickers, Sons and Maxim to recognize that this company is now starting to expand towards armaments much more. By 1902, Vickers becomes the first company in world history to produce an all-steel battleship, fit its armor plates, its engines, its guns, and supply it with projectiles from within just one company. And they achieve that in 1902. Compare that to the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier just produced at the same shipyard in the past four or five years. That has involved the coordination of a thousand companies. 
to supply it and develop it. Now, of course, the technology has moved on. We are looking at more electronics and so forth in terms of how warfare has developed. When we're going back to these castles of steel, these large naval battleships and dreadnoughts, we can produce them all from within one steel company. Vickers continues to expand their empire after 1897. They gain a 40% holding in a gunpowder company called the Chilworth Gunpowder Company, so they can start to fill their projectiles and shells once they've been produced. They took over the Wolseley Tool and Motor Car Company in 1901, predominantly to produce armored cars and armored vehicles for uh, land battles. They take over a 50% holding in William Beardmore and Co. of uh, Glasgow. Now, Beardmore is starting to emerge as a competitor to Vickers and the other armor plate producers of the time by wanting to produce armor plate themselves. And this small group of companies, this small ring of companies, as it becomes known, is very keen to make sure that no one else can make armors because they can make lots of profit off of this. A normal basic ton of steel will make you about 10% profits. A ton of something made in armaments will make you 40 to 50% profits. These companies are using their specialty in producing steel to make a lot of profit by producing for the Royal Navy. Beardmore as a competitor might actually mean that they are starting to lose that profitability. So rather than allow a competitor to come onto the scene, Vickers buys a 50% holding in the Beardmore company and gives Lord Beardmore a seat at their board of directors as well. You start to see these crossovers develop more. I've got a few more to talk through as well. Vickers also buys a torpedo company at Weymouth, 25% holding of that in 1906. And they also develop overseas holdings in America, Italy, Japan, Spain, Canada, Russia, and Turkey before 1914. Vickers was very much one of the first multinational companies, what we would now recognize as a multinational company, and becomes the fifth largest company in all of the UK by 1914 as well. Relatively few companies are bigger than them in terms of capitalization. They were also the first company in Sheffield history to make a million pounds profit in one year. What buying the Naval Construction Company did was it allowed Vickers to have an outlet for their armor. They could now sell the armor and the battleship as a entire product. It meant that they could actually make more profits. And our two other Sheffield armor manufacturers decided to respond to this. John Browns and Camel Laird decided to buy shipyards of their own. And I'll come on to that later. I didn't realize, I forgot I put these slides in here. So these are a few slides of naval guns that have been produced by Vickers of the time. This is in the gun shop at the River Donworks, which is still known as the gun shop. And these battleship guns are made from multiple pieces of steel. You generally have three tubes known as the A tube, the B tube, and the C tube or outer tube. The A tube is your longest tube, which includes your rifling, and then your smaller tube. The B tube is put over that, and then your final tube as well. Now, initially, these are all made of steel and they're fitted together. And they are using nickel and chromium in their steels as well. The rifling of the gun barrels is done to a tolerance of one ten thousandth of an inch. Now, this is the early 1900s. This is the Edwardian period, and they're having to work to such very, very, very small tolerances. And the cutting of the rifling be a very, very slow process that took up to a year. If there was a mistake made, you had to scrap the gun, melt it down, and start again. Generally, the production time of one of these large naval guns was around two years. One of the ways that these develop later on is by wrapping them in wire to absorb the recoil when they're fired. I'll talk a little bit about that as we move on. These are some of the smaller uh, naval guns made of the time. We also have some pictures of making gun turrets for battleships here at the River Donworks. And as you can see, these are made of very large pieces of steel, often very difficult to assemble, even harder to transport to the coast because of their size. And often, especially with armor plate, you don't really know if the armor plate fits together until you've got it to a shipyard and you have to weld it all together. My next slide shows some of the smaller guns that Vickers used and produced and some of the field guns that they produced as well. Vickers was very much developing themselves as a naval and an army producer as well. And this was their gun shop laid out for a royal visit in 1905, Prince and Princess Arisugawa of Japan. Sheffield, by the early 1900s, was starting to produce for many countries around the world, and I'll come on to this later as well. That reputation for producing for the Royal Navy is very important. 
it actually means that you have essentially a gold star for your quality. And companies over time fell foul of the Royal Navy, were taken off Royal Navy's procurement lists. And it meant that overseas companies decided not to buy from them until they were put back on those naval lists. This was really a marketing tool for these companies to say that we are producing for the Royal Navy. This was incredibly important for them. So I did move on to this prematurely a second ago. So in response to Vickers developing their empire the way they did, John Browns and Camel Laird realized that they needed to connect to shipyards and gain those outlets as well. So in 1899, John Browns buys the Clydebank Engineering and Shipbuilding Works so that they also have that connection to a shipyard for their steel outputs and for their armor outputs as well. And they took over a seven-eighths control of their next-door neighbors, Thomas Firth and Sons, in 1903. This was a share exchange. So Thomas Firth's shares went to John Brown in return. John Brown gave Thomas Firth some shares as well. It creates this sort of loose amalgamation between the two companies. In 1930, the two companies ultimately merge and become another famous Sheffield name of Firth Brown. So with John Brown, they're connecting to Thomas Firth, which by this point was starting to develop more projectiles as well. And Charles Camels buys the Laird Brothers shipyard in 1903 to form Camel Laird. That shipyard is still in production and is Birkenhead where all of the Charles Camels records are now kept as well. To develop their gun making capacity as well, these companies connected with another shipyard called Fairfields to develop what was known as the Coventry Ordnance Works from 1905. Uh, Coventry Ordnance Works later became part of English Electric and was converted to production of um, electrical motors after the First World War. What these companies together as a network of companies are doing is very much try to replicate what Vickers were doing within one company. But the development of this in a rather haphazard way meant that for any of these companies to produce a finished battleship, it meant a lot of moving stuff around. So I talked earlier about companies producing gun forgings. Well, those unfinished gun forgings would then be taken to Coventry to be turned into naval guns. If you had any armor that you were making, it then had to go to either Birkenhead or Clydebank to be fitted to a ship. The guns would actually have to go to Glasgow because Coventry Ordnance Works had a gun fitting factory on the Clyde. So any ships made by camels had to then sail to Glasgow to be fitted with their guns. Very complicated supply chain. Very much shows the complexity of this sort of haphazard development of these companies, which really starts, as I've shown earlier, from 1860 with that initial use of steel, at least in a large scale for armaments. Let me show you a few images that I found in the Camel Laird records of the Cyclops works. These images are from around about 1900, and this shows the Cyclops steel and iron works where Charles Camels were making their armor plate. Now, by 1896, a new method of producing armor had been developed, known as the Krupp cemented armor production, made by Krupps of Germany. And you might be asking, well, why is Britain using a German design of armor plates? Well, it's because it was the best in production at the time. And Krupps very readily licensed their means of production to this small network of Sheffield companies. And the way that production of a Krupps cemented piece of armor works is that you produce a slab of steel, which is roughly 2% nickel and 2% chromium. And once it is produced in a furnace and produced as a slab, you then put it into what is known as a Krupp furnace. You lay your piece of armor down and you cover the surface with charcoal. And then you place another armor plate face down on top of the charcoal. And then you heat it for around about two weeks. And the heating of the armor plate and the charcoal means that the face of the armor starts to be impregnated with that carbon. And it starts to make it much stronger. And it starts to change the structure of the armor as well to a more crystalline format, which actually resists armor-piercing projectiles much more. We have this sort of one-upmanship battle between companies in Sheffield. Somebody makes a piece of armor, another company makes an armor-piercing projectile to go through it, then someone else makes a better piece of armor that resists that projectile, and someone makes a better projectile. We're getting this back and forth, and the technology of armor starts to spread around the world, partly from Krupps of Germany, their invention of this Krupps cemented armor, and also a gentleman called Augustus Haywood Harvey from the United States. Now, I'll show you on my next slide. So once we've got our armor plate that's been impregnated with carbon, we put it into what is known as a Harvey furnace, which is exactly like this. 
Now, what you do with your armor plate, once it comes out of your furnace, very hot and full of carbon, you put it into one of these furnaces, which sprays the face of it with water or oil to produce that final hardening on these armor plates. And this method produced by Harvey of the United States is invented almost at exactly the same time as a researcher at John Brown's known as Ptolemy John Tresider. And they both invent this, this process of water hardening the face of the armor at the same time. So they are sharing those patented ideas. There's also a sharing of these ideas from Germany. And you get this sort of rough network of armor companies from across the world that are sharing and using the Krupp methods of producing this cemented armor and the Harvey methods of hardening. And they have a loose connection in terms of royalties, and they're making very small royalties within that network, but it's really just maintaining the technology within those companies. Those licensing agreements also have what's known as a reciprocal arrangement, which meant that if Vickers or Camels or John Browns made any improvements in this armor, they had to freely give that method back to Krupps of Germany. Once your armor plate here is hardened, you then have to take it and bend it to the shape of your battleship. And to do that, you do it in one of these very large armor bending presses. Now, this is, again is an image from Camel Lead. This is from around about 1910, this image. And you'll see that you heat your piece of armor to a incredible heat that it is slightly malleable. And then you use this very large press, which is producing 12,000 tons of pressure to bend the armor plate to the shape of your battleship. Now, to give you a contemporary comparison here, this is producing 12,000 tons of pressure. A fully loaded jumbo jet weighs 450 tons. So you can see the massive machinery that has been produced at the turn of the century into the Edwardian period. Now, one of the problems that these companies had was that this means of production, these very large pieces of equipment for producing armor this way, didn't really have any other use. It was either used for armor or it wasn't used at all. This became a bit of a problem for many of these companies in the 1920s once armor and battleships weren't being produced. So that is Krupp cemented armor, licensed from Krupps of Germany. You've got that process there. You make the nickel chromium piece of armor, you harden it using charcoal, cool it and harden it using the water or oil drenching method, and then you bend it to shape here. So this starts us to have the armor plate as sort of having the one-upmanship over armor-piercing projectiles. And this is where this gentleman comes in, Sir Robert Abbott Hadfield, arguably probably the biggest genius in Sheffield's metallurgical history. In 1882, he invents what's known as manganese steel, which is a very hard-wearing steel used for things like ore and rock crushing machinery, tramway wheels, tramway uh, rails as well. And it's very much the first alloy steel which goes into production and really starts Sheffield on that path towards alloys and specialist steels all the way through to the First World War and things like the invention of stainless steel as well. So he invents this in 1882. He takes over the family company after his father dies in 1888 at the age of just 30 and remains chairman of the company for 52 years until his death in 1940. He's a bit of a genius, but he's a very complicated figure as well. And during most of the 1920s, he sees it as being completely fine to run the company via telegram from the south of France. He's kind of a complex character in many ways. I talked to a, another historian about him recently who said that he needed to employ a psychologist to help him understand Hadfield. But manganese steel, as a very hard-wearing steel, meant that you could, because it's produced in a crucible, you can cast it in ways that you couldn't really do with other types of armor. So you recall those gun turrets from Vickers and those armor plates. They're very solid slabs. What Hadfield realizes is that you can use his manganese steel to cast pieces of armor in much more complicated shapes. And he brands his um, manganese steel as era steel and produces these covers for guns for battleships as well. And what I always like about the images from Hadfields is that they always have some random workman in a flat cap at the side just to give you a sense of the scale of these things. So Hadfields is making these covers for guns, but Hadfield is also putting his metallurgical knowledge towards how you defeat Krupp cemented armor. And what Hadfield realizes is that you can use that nickel chromium steel, the same steel that you use for armor plating, 2% nickel, 2% chromium within your steel melt, because it means that you can harden that. But having a traditional pointed armor piercing projectile doesn't really work when it comes to Krupp cemented armor. It will just break up or ricochet off the face of that. 
Now, one of the things that Hadfield starts to realize is that to defeat Krupp's cemented armor, you need to place what he describes as Hadfield's special cap for armor-piercing shell. And you place this on the top of your armor-piercing projectile. Now, in my far left-hand image here, I don't know if you can see my cursor on your screen, there is a slight dotted line which shows where the point of the projectile would go to. And the way this works is that you put this much softer steel cap over the top of your point of your projectile. And what this did is it absorbed that initial impact against the armor plates and essentially fold away around the projectile to allow the point of the projectile to pass through the armor plate. You can see in the other two images, the same cap on our far left-hand image, which has essentially had the rest of the armor-piercing projectile pushed through it and it sort of softens and blends away out of the way of that projectile, allowing it to go through that armor plate. Now, if I move on to my next slide, I'll show you how these are tested. Now, the way that projectiles will be tested is that one is picked at random out of a batch of a thousand, which is supplied to the Royal Navy, and they fire it without any explosive charge at a piece of armor, which is equal in thickness to the caliber of this projectile. So this projectile is a 12-inch caliber, so a foot across the diameter of the projectile. It is fired against a 12-inch thick armor plate. Think about that, a piece of solid steel that is a foot deep. And it is fired against that. And here you can see in this image, you've got three sheets of oak. And the projectile has to be fired against it at a right angle, pass through plates and be able to be collected in order for it to have been uh, burst if it had an explosive charge in there. So the image at the bottom on our far left is the shell before firing. You can see that cap on the top of there. The far right, you see it after firing. It's got all the scuff marks on it. The projectile cap has disappeared. And this is what they want from an armor-piercing projectile, for it to pass through this Krupp armor un in unheeded. Now, you might notice a problem here, which is that this is tested at a right angle, at 90 degrees to the armor plate. As we probably all know, battles, and naval battles in particular, do not proceed at right angles. These projectiles had big issues when it came to such as the Battle of Jutland in 1915. Now, these companies knew that the projectiles had issues when it came to what they describe as oblique attack at sort of 10 to 20 degrees off the normal, and developed caps to do that before the First World War. And the Navy realized that it had cost them money, so they didn't want them. What I've had this, these projectiles described as before is dynamic cutlery. You're firing a piece of steel at a piece of steel in order to produce a hole in it. You'd expect that this production of these projectiles will give at least the Royal Navy, at least our Sheffield companies, the upper hand against that Krupp cemented armor I described earlier. Now, this is where history gets very interesting. Hadfields invents and patents this type of armor-piercing projectile in 1904, and one of their first licensees is Krupps of Germany. This means of defeating Krupp armor is licensed back to the company that makes the armor plate. Now, we, of course, view this with historical hindsight. We can see that just 10 years later would be the First World War. The contemporaries at the time didn't know that. And what they're really seeing here is an exchange of metallurgical ideas not an exchange of armaments or a means of fighting wars. So Hadfield invents this in 1904, and we can see here huge amounts of these being produced at Hadfield's East Heckler Works. This is 10 and 12-inch caliber projectiles lined up. For the Navy, they are painted green. For the American Navy, they're painted white. So we have some produced for the American Navy in this image here as well. This comes from a great book that's at Sheffield's local studies library called uh, Hadfield's, the Hadfield System as Applied to War Materials. Essentially, a catalog for anybody who wants to buy some weapons from Hadfield's. It's a essentially a brochure of projectiles they can produce for you. It's a wonderful little booklet. So you can see huge amounts of these lined up here. And these are produced at this little factory in our top left here. This is the Heckler Works on Newall Road. That is the arguably making some of the most advanced metallurgical products in the entire world at the time. Armaments was really at the vanguard of metallurgical knowledge and production. It was great for these Sheffield companies because you're starting to see that scientification of steel production. You're starting to see that use of things like I've said, nickel, chromium, manganese, more exotic metals as well 
well. Things like tungsten and molybdenum are starting to be used as well. And the Royal Navy has given them an outlet for that. They are able to produce these very special steels towards that end product, either armor or projectiles. Now, those early calibers of armor-piercing projectiles, I've showed you that demonstration there of a 12-inch caliber projectile. And Hadfield's also produced six-inch caliber projectiles at the time. They go all the way up to 18-inch caliber projectiles, which you'll see in this bottom image here. This is the Hadfield's directors and the range of armor-piercing projectiles that they were producing by 1919. The projectile here labeled B is an 18-inch armor-piercing projectile, which I believe is the one that is currently in Kellam Island, right around the corner from the River Don engine. And if you take a look at it, it is about two tons of solid steel. The explosive cavity inside them is only about 4% of the weight for that explosive charge. It is a fantastically interesting and advanced piece of metallurgy of the time. I mentioned Thomas Firth earlier, and Firth also gets into projectile manufacture from the 1890s into the early 1900s as well. Under the guidance of this man, Bernard Firth, he was the third son of Thomas Firth and becomes the third generation of the Firth family to be chairman of that company. And what Bernard Firth really did was move Firth away from those steel guns that I showed you earlier, things like the Woolwich Infant, towards making a broader range of armaments. And Firth has a much longer history when it comes to armaments, and they were quite pleased to show it all off as well. They had an office at their Norfolk Works, and this image from around about 19... I can't see what it says on my slide because there's something covering it. There we go, 1908. It shows you all of the things that they're producing from steel. Down in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see it says Crimean War had... Sorry, Firths were producing these cannonballs, and it slowly over time has emerged into these pointed projectiles as well. You can see a torpedo air vessel at the top there, that very large tube. That is the tube through which a torpedo would be fired from a ship or a submarine. And you also have an example of a gun right in the middle there as well. And what Firths invent roughly at the same time as Hadfields were producing their armor-piercing projectiles. Hadfields armor-piercing projectiles are known as Heclon armor-piercing projectiles. And Firth produce what I have in this image here, the rendable armor-piercing projectile. The top image you see here is very similar design to the Hadfields one I showed you a moment ago. But you see that they have a much flatter cap than the Hadfields version. Very much does the same job. And the image that you see in the bottom right is a huge amount of shells waiting to be heat treated in the yard at Thomas Firth's West Gunworks. That is now the car park of Gripple, if you've ever been to that area of Sheffield. And I can show you inside what is now Gripple. This is Firth's shell machining shop from around about 1906. And once you've cast your projectile, you need to machine it to the right dimension. And that's what we're seeing here, a huge room full of lathes with all of these cables running. And again, a wonderful image without any health and safety. All of these men who are highly skilled, the sort of highest skilled workers in, in the entire steelworks would be the metallurgists and the steelworkers making these very specialist steels and all of the engineers producing the shells to the finished dimensions as well. And we can see the relative value of these workers in terms of the wage bill. And at Thomas Firth's, it was their gun department. And this, what I have here is from Thomas Firth Archive that's currently a Sheffield Archives. Very wonderful set of records, runs to about 300 boxes from 1881 all the way to the 1980s as well. And what we see here is the wage bill for Thomas Firth for 1908 and 1909. Just going to highlight right in the middle there the gun department's wage bill. So that one department absorbed 25% of the wages for the entire company. The one department known as the gun, gun department, the gun works. But that gun works produced 40% of the total output for the company and was very much the root of the company's profits. You look into the um, accounting records and the profitability records of all of these companies, John Brown, Camels, Vickers, Hadfields, Firths, and you can see when they have a good year for armaments, they're making big profits. When they have a bad year for armaments, they're making lower profits. In the 1920s, when they're not making any armaments, they all start making losses. These companies, which are steel and armaments companies, are very much geared towards that one product has been the key to their prosperity. Vickers, I would more commonly describe as an armaments company with an interest in steel. The other four companies are more steel companies with that interest in armaments. But they are very much relying on these highly specialized pieces of equipment. You start to get exclusive arrangements between companies like Hadfields, at least, and the Royal Navy for shell production from 1905 through to the First World War, where the Navy is guaranteeing Hadfields 50% of all orders. But in a slack year, 50% of no orders is still no orders. 
So these companies start to have these exclusive arrangements with the supply ministries like the Admiralty and the Royal Navy, but it doesn't always mean that they guaranteed those orders. And let me show you a couple more images of gun forgings. What am I doing for time, actually? Okay. Show you a couple of images of gun forgings, then we'll move towards wrapping things up. So I talked about gun forgings. That's what's in our top left-hand image here. These are unfinished naval guns. And these will be sent from camels to uh, the Comptry Ordnance Works for that machining. And what you want is the what we have in the bottom right-hand image here, the finished naval gun at Vickers Works from 1912. You'll notice these guns are slightly larger and slightly more complex than the ones that I showed you earlier from 1905. Now, the gun technology moved on. Uh, and during the sort of 1908 to 1910 period, we developed what was known as the wire gun. So you still have the tubes that have been machined and had the rifling fitted and all of that that takes around about a year but then these guns would slowly be wrapped in quarter inch thick steel wire up to a hundred miles of it to build up this sort of recoil ability in those guns so that when they're fired they're not cracking all of that is dispersing into that wire and then you fit the finished sheath around it. So once the gun is finished, you don't actually see that wire. Yeah, as you can see in this image, you've seen the different layers of that gun being produced and you can see the rifling down the middle as well. Now I've talked a lot here about how these companies were producing for the Royal Navy. And what it didn't always mean was that they were guaranteed orders. So what these companies did, especially from 1900, was develop an international uh, consumer base for what they produced. And let me just show you this. These are all nations and armed forces that bought weapons, war armors from Sheffield between 1900 and 1914. The Japanese Navy, the American Army and Navy, the Brazilian, Argentine, Italian, Turkish, French navies, Dutch governments, the Greek Navy, the Spanish Navy, the Danish, Russian and Canadian governments, the Chilean Navy, the Peruvian Navy and the Portuguese Navy. Basically, most of the world's foremost navies of the period. And these, which I will highlight in bold, the Japanese Navy, the American Navy, Italian and Turkish navies, Greek Navy, Spanish Navy and Portuguese Navy, all ordered armaments from Sheffield in 1940. 14. Hadfields was a major producer of Japanese armor-piercing projectiles, and before the First World War had a class of Japanese naval engineers in Sheffield teaching them how to make those projectiles. First, similarly had a connection with the Italian Navy for producing projectiles as well. I can dig into this a little bit more on my next slide, uh, looking at uh, Hadfields as well, in a little bit more detail. The, the bottom image here is from Hadfields projectile order books. We have the order books available from 1900 to 1945 complete. It's a very fantastic record, runs to several thousand pages across several volumes. Foreign orders were important. As I said, if naval orders started to decline, you could use foreign orders to keep your works in production. And these foreign orders would often be more lucrative than British army orders. At this time, we had a very small professional army and the Royal Arsenal at Woolwich was very likely to produce everything that the army required. As I've already mentioned here, first extensively produced for the Italian government, and Hadfields had orders for the Imperial Japanese Navy for £450,000 of the projectiles between 1909 and 1914. Contemporary figures, that would be around about £45 million worth of orders. In the same period, Hadfields only produced about £100,000 worth of projectiles for the British Army. And right at the bottom here, I can just highlight here, the Ottoman government. This is an order from the 2nd of April, 1914. And this was an order to Hadfields. And the Ottoman government was very very likely to be a new customer for Hadfields before the First World War broke out. Um, these projectiles were ordered, ultimately directed to the Royal Navy instead. And these were going to go on to a ship known as the Rechade, which was being produced at um, Vickers Works at Barrow. And a figure lost to history known as Winston Churchill, right as the First World War was breaking out, decided that they couldn't let this battleship go to the Turkish government in case it was used against the British Navy, the Royal Navy during the First World War. So seized that ship and seized another ship known as the Sultan Osman, which was being produced at uh, Newcastle at Armstrong Whitworth Works. So these two battleships that were being produced for the Turkish Navy, the Ottoman government, were seized and very much promoted the Ottoman entry into the Great War on the same side as the Germans and Austrians. So you might start to say, well, where does the official secrets fit into all of this? Where does using this technology outside of the government, actually outside of the Britain, should I say, actually start to matter? 
And for this, I look to this gentleman, Thomas McNamara, who was Parliamentary and Financial Secretary of the Admiralty. And he said in 1914, this was in the House of Commons, he said, the government does not interfere with the construction of armaments of contractors designed for foreign powers and cannot any more than any other government necessarily monopolize all inventions and improvements, many of which from their nature could, not, could either not be kept confidential at all or only for a very limited period. What is McNamara saying here? Well, he's very much saying, we're keeping our hands off. We don't have to give these companies orders if foreign governments are giving them orders to keep those skilled staff in production, keep those skilled staff employed. In other words, we're letting them get on with it. This is a very unique point in history where private industry is driving forward the technology of the Royal Navy rather than it being derived from government facilities or government-sponsored facilities. And of course, we've already seen that crossover with Krupps of Germany. We have the armor play from Krupps. We've licensed those projectiles back to Krupps. And I want to finish with just one short story all about Krupps. And this gentleman in the top right here, Gustav Krupp. Now, Gustav was not a member of the Krupp family. Um, Bertha Krupp, in our image here, Bertha Krupp, whose, whose name was given to the German gun, the Big Bertha in the First World War. In the early 1900s, in 1902, Bertha, as a teenager, inherited the Krupp empire from her father, Friedrich Krupp, who had committed suicide after a scandal in the German newspapers about his sexuality based on the testimony of a single male hairdresser. So Bertha inherited the Krupp empire, and it was seen undesirable that not only a teenager, but a female teenager was in control of what was at the time the largest German armaments manufacturer. This was seen as being very undesirable. So because of the Krupp network's close links to the Kaiser, they decided to find somebody in this sort of arranged marriage to marry Bertha. And they found Gustav von Bohen und Halbach, a foreign secretary of the German government, this gentleman in the top right-hand picture. At their marriage, the German Kaiser was present. And the German Kaiser said that Gustav would thereafter be known as Gustav Krupp von Bolchen und Halbach, rather than having somebody not named Krupp at the head of the government. Gustav here survived into the Second World War. And after the bombing of um, the Krupp factory at Essen in the Second World War, he had a stroke from which he didn't recover. He was due to be tried at the Nuremberg trials, but didn't because of ill health. So we have... Krupp here, Gustav, heading up the Krupp Empire in Essen, very much the same size as all of our Sheffield companies combined, but within one company and one factory network. And because we've had this exchange of technology between Sheffield and Germany, many of our Sheffield companies had visited Essen. They'd taken a look around the Krupp's works. Hadfield um, went to Germany in 1912 and described himself in the Times as a Germanophile. He said that the technological links between the two countries were extremely important. Now, in 1914, Gustav is looking to tour Britain. And this letter, dated the 1st of May 1914, starts to arrive at the head offices of many of our Sheffield companies. In fact, all of our Sheffield companies. I found this letter in the Camel Laird records. And this is Krupp's first overseas visit as head of Krupp's. And all of our Sheffield companies said, yes, do come along. I think if I move along, yes. The letter says here that the head of our firm is intends to stay in England during the week. Uh, the dates later changed. Um, and it says, on this occasion, he wishes to pay his respects to leading gentlemen of the firms that are our friends. Very interesting phrase. Now, this that letter was received on the 1st of May 1914. The Admiralty gets wind of this, and this letter is, as I said, in the Camel Laird records. They sent a letter to William Lionel Hitchens, who was the chairman of Camels, uh, on the 29th of May. And I'm going to show you a couple of extracts from this. The Navy are very, the Admiralty, should I say, are very scared of the Germans actually seeing anything that they don't want them to see. And it says here, they trust that every precaution will be taken to ensure that the visitors see nothing of a confidential character. They appears to be a reason that to believe that the features which would interest them most will be the construction of wire guns, those I showed you earlier in the Vickers works. Now, a couple of things to note here. This is a standard letter. And up near the top, the one, two, three, fourth line down, you'll see it says, Mr. Camel Laird and Co. In a different font to the rest of this letter. Camels did not make wire guns. This was a standard letter sent to all of these companies in a bit of a panic, really. 
It says the Admiralty would be obliged, therefore, if special steps were taken to prevent the visitors seeing anything but finished wire guns, etc. The last paragraph. At the same time, it is hoped that the directors will take advantage of this visit to obtain from Mr. Scrub an invitation to visit their works, and the Admiralty would be glad if to report of any such visit could be communicated to them confidentially. In other words... Don't show them anything. But if you go to Germany and you see something confidential, don't forget to let us know as well. So Krupp eventually visits Britain and he arrives on the 16th of June. He hosts a party at the Ritz in London. He then travels to Birkenhead to view the shipyards, up to Barrow, up to Glasgow, then to Newcastle, and then ultimately to Sheffield. They arrive on the evening of the 18th of June and they stay with Robert Hadfield at his house here on the bottom left-hand side, Parkhead House, also known as Parkhead Hall. Over the years, has after Hadfield passed away, was converted into a nursing home, was later converted back into a house, and is now up for sale. I believe the asking price, although not public, is around about the five to six million pounds mark. On that first night that Hadfield hosted Krupp, the 18th of June, 1914, they also have in their company William Lionel Hitchens, the chairman of Camel Laird. They have the vice chancellor and chancellor of the University of Sheffield. They have the master cutler, the great and the good of Sheffield industry, all visiting to see Krupp. On the 19th, on the next day, Krupp goes on a tour of the Sheffield Steelworks. I have a little extract here from the Times from the next day, which I'll talk through in a second. And Krupp visits Hadfields and Vickers and Camel Laird. He has luncheon at John Brown's. He visits Thomas Firth. He goes to see all of these. And of course, these companies have been to Germany themselves. So this isn't really anything unusual. Let me highlight a couple of points in our little extract here. Robert Hadfield, who's very much an aggrandizer. Hadfield is the kind of guy who loves his own voice. He makes these very long speeches at the annual general meetings. He likes a public occasion. And he says in his speech, once Krupp arrives at the East Heckler Works modern day meadow hall, uh, Hadfield says to the press, he had never seen why the two great nations of England and Germany need be enemies. They were not merely destined to be acquaintances, but surely to be friends in the best sense of the term. Later on, uh, Gustav replies, they says, for a number of years, friendly relations had existed between the German firms and the British firms. If it were possible for the two countries to have friendly commercial relations, he did not see why the political relations founded so largely on commercial interests should not also be friendly. Hadfield in 1918, Hadfield, of course, very much an aggrandizer, as I've already said, recounted this visit in the local press. And Hadfield claims that at these tech words, Krupp had come up to him and said this. I hope you do not think I have come here to spy. Now, we know that spying wasn't necessary, of course. These companies have been sharing technology for years. And this was essentially a friendly connection between these companies. The next day, the 20th of June, when this little report appears in the Times, Gustav leaves Sheffield via what's now Sheffield Station, Midland Station. Eight days later, Archduke Franz Ferdinand is shot, leading to his death and the ultimate unraveling of Europe towards the Great War. And Krupp was in Sheffield just nine days before that assassination. I'm going to bring our story to a conclusion there in June 1914. And let me bring all of this together as Sheffield as the arsenal of the world. You can see this little image on the right here. This was a booklet produced by the council during the First World War to emphasize Sheffield as the arsenal of the world. To me, Sheffield is the most important center for armaments, technology, and productively in 1914. You can see that from the emphasis the Royal Navy is placing on this place and also from that range of customers they have across the world. But in many ways, these companies were completely unprepared for the demands of war once that broke out in August 1914. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to Archaeology Now. For more information about our podcast, guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Next month, our talk will be Maureen Carroll from the University of York, speaking on making wine for the emperor on the Roman imperial state at Vagnari, Italy. See you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.